From the in-town Jewish Academy in Atlanta, Georgia, I am Rabbi Ari Solish, and this is Knowledge on the Deeper Side. In this podcast, we discuss the most inspiring and stimulating Jewish ideas, ideas that challenge the way you think and feel. To sponsor a class or episode, please visit intownjewishacademy.org slash sponsor. And now, on to the episode. And a very warm welcome to Kabbalah and Coffee. This is, in my opinion, the best way to start the week. Dare I say, the only way to get the week started, really. The, the, uh, the tagline for this class is, as you all know, this class offers coffee in your cup and Kabbalah in your cup. <laughs> cup means, of course, head in Yiddish. All right, this series, Kabbalah and Coffee, is dedicated by Dr. Joy Maxey in honor of the memory of her dear mother and Geraldine Britte Maxey. May her memory be for an eternal blessing. Let's jump into today's conversation, and I want to I want to tell three stories, three stories. One story that goes back 2,700 years, one story that goes back 2,400 years, and one story that goes back 1,700 years. As you can tell. I'm more of a modern type of guy, ready to tell super <laughs> modern stories. Now, these are old stories that pack quite the lesson. The, story, the first story that I'm about to tell you takes place during the time of the first Holy Temple in Jerusalem. So just so you know a little bit about the arc of Jewish history, so not to, not to go over everything from the beginning, we have the Torah for that, another text, but just to kind of quickly scan Jewish history to understand the context of, of the story that I'm about to tell you. As we know, the Jewish story begins with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then the 12 tribes, and then the Egyptian experience, and the Exodus, and Moses. And then the Jewish people, after 40 years of wandering, enter the Promised Land. For a few hundred years, they're led by prophets and judges and other holy individuals, special individuals, leaders, some warriors, some, some that are more spiritual, some that are more physically adept. Samson would be in that latter category. And then, finally, there was the era of the Jewish monarchy. The first Jewish king was a man named Saul. When the Jews wanted a king, the prophet answered, better call Saul. <laughs> that was a, uh, a slow lead into that joke. Okay, so Saul was the first Jewish king. In Hebrew, his name was Shaul, King Shaul. He was anointed by the prophet at the time, the prophet Samuel, who has a few books in scripture named after him, namely Samuel 1 and Samuel 2, the adventure continues, um, or Samuel 2, Bugulu. So back to the story. So we have the first king is Saul, Shaul. The next king is David. The next king is Solomon. And after that, things get a little bit interesting. Because after the reign of King Solomon, his son became the king. Solomon's son, David's grandson, became king. His name was Rehavam or Rehoboam, I think, in the English. Always not exactly sure how to pronounce the English names of people. Um, Rechavam in the Hebrew, also gets to clear, you get to clear the throat. 
Rechavam levied very high taxes on the Jewish people. So what happens is the kingdom revolts. And basically a large number of Jews, a large number of tribes, the majority of tribes say, thank you very much, Mr. King, Rechavam. We don't want to pay the tribute. We don't want to pay the taxes. So in fact, we're going to have our own monarchy. We're going to have a breakaway kingdom and have our own king, the own king that we've decided, that we've elected, and that we like his policies. And thus, the nation of Israel splits the kingdom of the Jewish people or the Jewish nation splits into two kingdoms. The kingdom in the south, the kingdom in the north, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom, also known as the kingdom of Judea, that was the southern kingdom, and the kingdom of Israel, that was the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom was comprised of ten tribes. Those were the breakaway. The breakaway had the majority. The southern Kingdom had two tribes, but they also had the temple. The Holy Temple in Jerusalem was located in the southern kingdom of Judah. You guys with me so far? The kingdom splits. At that point, not only are there two kings, not only are there two policies, taxation policies and otherwise, but now creeps in corruption. And you have corruption that not only hits on a physical level, but also on a spiritual level. And the kings, certainly it starts with the kings in the kingdom of the north, the northern kingdom, that many of the kings are steeped in idolatry. If you're familiar with King Achav, Ahab, and his wife, Izevel, Jezebel, right? You'll be familiar. If you're familiar with those stories, you know how obsessed they were with idolatry. These were Jewish kings and queens. And the one thing we know about Judaism is monotheism, right? Are you with me? If like you had to capture Judaism in one word, you would say monotheism. Maybe. That's what I would say, right? What's, what's unique about Judaism? It starts with monotheism. There's a lot of other things, but it starts with monotheism. And yet these Jewish kings were anything but monotheistic. Many of the Jewish kings were, were anything but monotheistic. It also crept in sometimes uh, in some eras into the southern kingdom. The first temple stood. The first temple was built by King, designed by King David in Cupertino. Kidding. Designed by David and built by his son, King Solomon. Now, King Solomon, he was the one who built the temple. It stood, the first temple stood for 410 years. The story that I'm about to tell you takes place during the reign of, sorry, during the the first temple era. I would say in the latter half of those 410 years. So in the last 200 years or so of the first temple's standing. The king at the time was a fellow named Menashe. Menashe. Menashe, by the way, is one of the names of the 12 tribes. If you divide the tribe of Yosef, Joseph into two, it's Menashe and Ephraim. But um, this is not the tribe of Menashe. This is the individual known as Menashe who was one of the kings of the Jewish people. This king was, by all accounts, absolutely morally and spiritually corrupt. In fact... The, the tragedy, one of the tragedies of his reign is, number one, he reigned for 55 years. He began his reign when he was 12 years old, and he reigned for a total of 55 years. That's a long span to be a king. His father was Chizkiyoh HaMelech, also known as, in English, Hezekiah. The one thing we know about Chizkiyoh HaMelech, Hezekiah, was that he was one of the, king, uh, uh, the kings in the, in the southern kingdom, and he restored monotheism to the nation. 
He basically purged Jerusalem. He purged the temple. Can you imagine? Of idols and altars and foreign worship. He purged the, 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 he purged the nation, at least the southern kingdom, of idols. And that was his big accomplishment. Comes along his son and reverses it. By the way, I need to tell you, there's stories and stories. And so just buckle up. If you like stories, today is your class. We'll get to Kabbalah also. Don't worry. Um, but there's a crazy origin story of Manasseh. How was he born? King Hezekiah didn't get married. Cheskiah Melch didn't get married. He didn't have any children. And one day he falls very ill. He gets very sick. And the prophet at the time was, I believe this is correct, Isaiah. Yeshayo Anavi, Isaiah. Right? One of the great prophets of all time. And Isaiah, tell, he goes to the prophet, or the prophet goes to him and says, the prophet essentially tells him, you should know the reason why you're very sick. This guy was on his deathbed. The reason, the king, the reason why you're sick is because you didn't get married and you didn't have children. So the king says to him, uh, with all due respect, I've seen in my, in my, for, in my future, my, whether it's through astrology or prophecy, whatever it was, I see in my future that if I were to have a son, this son would be terribly corrupt. Was it Isaiah or Jeremiah? I'm forgetting which, uh, which prophet it was. Anyway, we're going to stick with Isaiah, even though it may not be correct. So the prophet says to him, that's wonderful that you have this vision of the future, but that does not, you can't use that to manipulate the present. You have to do what you need to do. You should get married and have children, etc. So he says to the prophet, okay, I hear you. And basically the prophet says, and if you do this, you'll be healed. Okay. Says to the prophet, okay, uh, will you give me your daughter to marry? The prophet says, yes. So he ends up marrying the prophet's daughter. And they have a child. The child's name is Menashe. And the, <laughs> the terrible predictions come true. Uh, sorry, Hezekiah gets healed. He, he's healed, and he lives for a number of years. But his the, the, his son Menashe actually turns out to fulfill all of those terrible predictions about uh, uh, that that his father was afraid of, and ultimately, he even murdered his own grandfather, the prophet, his mother's father, because the the, the his. Um, his, because his grandfather, of course, as the prophet was, you know, railing against him and he didn't like it. He was, you know, the prophet was talking about monotheism and he didn't like it. So, uh, so that is what happened. So he murdered his own grandfather. Anyway, I want to, I want to begin with, by reading uh, what I prepared in the handout, which will tell the story of Manasseh, our first story. This goes back again, 2,700 years. Um, I will pull it up on my screen as well. A second here. Hold on, please. We try this one more time. There we go. Okay. All right, you guys all, everyone has a copy of this? 
Okay, I'm going to read. Uh, the idolatrous king. This is from a Mishnah in Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin, of course, the literal meaning of Sanhedrin is, uh, well, it means the, the Jewish high court. This is the tractate that deals with issues pertaining to the Jewish Supreme Court. Three kings have no portion in the world to come. Jeroboam, Ahab, and Manasseh. You should know the reason, I mean, Jeroboam is not the Hebrew word. Ahab is not the Hebrew word, but Manasseh is. It was originally like Manasseh or whatever it is. It's just hard for me to pronounce that, so I just went Manasseh. And anyway, he's going to be the one we're focusing on, so I just put him back to the, to the, uh, to the Hebrew. Yeroboam, uh, by the way, Jeroboam, was, I, I want to say, one of the first, if not the first, northern king. He, listen to this. When the kingdom split, he actually put guards. He put, um, he put, not guards, um, soldiers on the roads to make sure that no one from the northern kingdom would be able to make a pilgrimage into the southern kingdom to visit the temple in Jerusalem for the holidays. The Torah says that three times a year, everyone should go. If you can make it, everyone should go to the temple, to Jerusalem, right, to the holy temple to experience the holidays there. It's a mitzvah. But he was, that was in the southern kingdom. He was the king of the northern kingdom. He didn't want any of his people going to check out the southern kingdom and maybe liking it or paying uh, what do you call it when you go somewhere? Um, pilgrimage. Pilgrimage, right. Making a pilgrimage to the southern kingdom. So he put guards, officers, soldiers on the road to basically turn back everybody by threat of force. Uh, no one would be allowed to, uh, to, to hit the south. Anyway, so that's Jeroboam. Ahab, of course, and, 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 and Jezebel, Ahab, and, and Izebel were just absolute terror as far as uh, idolatry and murder goes. And, of course, Manasseh, who is the subject of today's discussion. All right, that's the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, chapter 10, Mishnah number 2. Now, here is the account from the Book of Kings, the second Book of Kings. Here's a little bit about Manasseh. Manasseh was 12 years old. And we're back inside. Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for 55 years. Like I told you, he was a king in the southern kingdom. You would think if, if any king would be would be would, would resist him, uh, um, corruption, spiritual corruption would be the kings in the south. There was a temple, a holy temple standing. It's all about God monotheism. Nope. He did evil back inside. He did evil in the eyes of God. Following the abominable practices of the nations that God had driven out from before the Israelites. In other words, all the Canaanites, right? All the people that God had driven out from before the Israelites, all those pagan nations, yeah, he brought it back. He rebuilt the altars that his father Hezekiah had destroyed. As I mentioned earlier, his father had, had gotten rid of the idols. He brought them back. He erected altars to the Baal. The Baal was a very, very uh, ugly idol in many ways. He made a worship tree. That's the um, Asherah. Just so you have your, uh, your, your ancient idol worship terms. There's the Baal and the Asherah. So he erected altars to the Baal. He made a worship tree, the Asherah, as Ahab, the king of Israel, had made. And he worshipped and prostrated himself. He bowed down before all the heavenly hosts, i.e. the sun, the moon, the stars, etc. This guy was into idolatry. If there was an idol, he was into it. He built pagan altars in the holy temple. It's just hard to imagine. You had like the holy temple, finally. Nope. Now we have altars, pagan altars in the holy temple. 
What a place for pagan altars, right? Though God had said in Jerusalem, I will establish my name. He also erected altars for all the heavenly hosts in the two courtyards of the temple. Manasseh led the nation astray and caused them to do more evil than that committed by the nations that God had destroyed before the Israelites. And that again is verbatim from the verses in the second book of Kings, chapter 21, uh, uh, excerpts from verses 1 through 9. This is This was Manasseh. You guys with me on this? He was a Jewish king in the southern kingdom, reigning over Jewish people in the kingdom of Judah. The temple, the holy temple was in his province. And yet, that did not hold him back from personal idol worship, collective idol worship, national idol worship, and setting up temples and pagan spaces inside the very holy temple in Jerusalem. Hey, good to see you. Okay, here, pass this down to Tessa, please. Thanks. You guys with me on this? So by all accounts, if I were to ask you, so tell me what you know now about Manasseh, you would say? Eh, not a great guy. I mean, from a Jewish, monotheistic perspective, not a great guy. He also killed his grandfather. Okay, let's continue. That's a story from, that's, that is the story from 2,700 years ago. Now let's fast forward 1,000 years. 1,000 years. So this is now going back from today. This is going back around 1,700 years ago. Maybe a little bit, maybe a little bit less. Maybe 1,600 years ago. It might be 1,100 years from the times of Menashe. Anyway, Ravashi, back inside. This is a story from the Talmud. The Talmud tells a story that takes place with a rabbi who was known as Rav Ashi. Rav, of course, means rabbi, and his name was Ashi, Rav Ashi. Rav Ashi was not just any Talmudic scholar. He was one of the two individuals who actually compiled the entire body of the work of the Talmud that we have today. So if you've heard of the word Talmud, if you've studied Talmud, if you've seen the dozens of volumes of thousands of pages, tens of thousands of pages of Talmud, the individuals that actually edited and compiled the Talmud, they didn't write all of the, they didn't, not all of the content is theirs, but they were the ones who edited and compiled it. There are two individuals, Ravina and Ravashi, and here's a story with Ravashi. Ravashi, he was a great scholar, that's my point. Ravashi once concluded his lecture, this would be in a study hall, uh, once concluded his lecture just as he reached the Mishnah regarding the three kings. What's the Mishnah regarding three kings? Just look at the top of your page. That's the Mishnah regarding the three kings, about the three kings that don't have a share in the world to come. Okay? Tomorrow, he, so he got up to that Mishnah. And tomorrow they were going to study that Mishnah. So what, look what he says to his students. Tomorrow, he told the students, we will commence the lecture with a discussion about our colleagues. So he's calling the three kings from 1,100 years ago his colleagues. Okay. That night, Menashe appeared to Ravashi in his dream. King Menashe is unhappy about being called the colleague of Ravashi. You refer to us as your colleagues and the colleagues of your father? He attacks him. Answer in a dream, answer then this halachic, halachic of course means Jewish legal, question. From where are you supposed to break the loaf of bread over which you recite the Hamotzi blessing? 
And you have a challah on Shabbos. You have a challah, a loaf of challah, bread. And, or any time during the week, it doesn't have to be, doesn't have to be on Shabbat, but, you know, Shabbat is when it's uh, more of a public thing. And you're going to recite the blessing, Hamotzi Lechem in Haaretz. Where do you break the loaf of bread over which you recite the Hamotzi blessing? Which part of the loaf do you break? Bit of a bizarre dialogue in a dream. But hey, we've all had strange dreams. I do not know, Ravashi responded to King Menashe in a dream. You've not learned this simple law. We're on page two now. You've not learned this simple law. Menashe chided him. Yet you have the nerve to call us your colleagues. Teach me this halacha. Teach me this law, Ravashi begged. And tomorrow I will teach it in the academy in your name. From the part, I have the word document here so I can correct a typo. From the part of the loaf that was fully baked before the rest, Menashe responded. Aha, where do you break the bread? From the part of the loaf that was baked, fully baked before the rest. I'm not going to explain the dialogue. We had a class that we taught a little while ago. I'm trying to remember when. It was called Curious Tales of the Talmud in which we got into this, the narrative and all the details, but you'll see with the punchline in a moment. If you are so wise, Ravashi wondered, why did you worship idols? This is in a dream. He's speaking to a king that's passed away already a thousand or eleven hundred years, who appeared to him to criticize him for calling him your colleague, our colleague, and he's proven, Manash has proven his wisdom. Ravashi now wonders, if you're so wise, why did you worship idols? And here's the punchline. Were you there with me, Menashe answered. In other words, if you would be there in my times, you would have lifted the hem of your cloak and run after me to worship them. Oh, you think you wouldn't have worshipped idols if you were there? You would be at the, at the front of the pack. You would have lifted up the, your cloak right, to run faster, to run after me to serve idols. The next day, Ravashi said to, that was the dream. The next day, the next morning, Ravashi said to his students, today we will commence the lecture with a discussion about the great ones. He changed it from colleagues to great ones. Now I want to check in on this story because I want to go deeper in this story. But in order to go deeper, I have to, we have to make sure that everyone understands the basic, what happens in the story. Menashe Yeravam, Jeroboam, and Ahab, Achav, are three kings that in Jewish history stand out as evil kings. To the point that the Talmud says they have no share in the world to come. You know, everyone has some sort of spiritual merit in the afterlife. These three kings, nope. And so, Ravashi is, about, is, is, getting, is, is uh, prepping his students for what they're going to learn the next day. He's giving them a bit of a teaser. Give him a trailer, right? A little uh, trailer for what's coming up. Upcoming next time on, uh, on, uh, on, on Talmudic Studies with Ravashi, we're going to talk about the mission of the three kings. We're going to talk about our colleagues. Menashe gets offended. Colleagues? You're, you're putting us on the same level? Don't make that mistake. I, Menashe speaks about himself, I am much greater than you. And to prove it, I'm going to ask you a question about Jewish love that you won't be able to answer. About the bread, where do you break the loaf? 
Upon which Ravashi is impressed. And he says to him, if you're so smart, if you're so wise, so spiritual, so then why did you serve idols? And his response is, essentially, you can't judge because you weren't there. Had you been there, you would have done the same thing. You with me on this? That's a dialogue. He says to him, a thousand years later, you're sitting on your, on your, um, on your recliner, yeah, with your cup of coffee, and you're saying... Oh, look at this guy. Look at this guy. Menashe. Serving idols. Building altars in the temple. What a bad guy. Yeah. Pass the, uh, I don't know. What would we pass if we're drinking some coffee or tea? The biscuits. Pass the biscuits. We'll talk about Menashe. Menashe says, little respect. Little respect. Let me prove to you my scholarship prowess. And if you're wondering why I served idols... Had you been there, you would have been more excited than me. Story makes sense? So the next day he says, let's talk about the three great ones. No more colleagues. No more colleagues. Great ones. He has respect. We're not going to get into all the details, details in the story. Why the bread? Why the hamotzi? Why that question? What does it prove? There's a lot to talk about, but not for right now. But I want to mention one thing. I already mentioned one thing. I'm going to mention another thing or two. Point number one, it's easy to judge at a different time in a different era. But if you were there, if I, if I was there, if you and I were there, we have no way to know if we would have been any better. Are you with me on this? We look back and say, different eras in history, how could they, even in... Frankly, even in, in modern times, we look at what somebody does and we judge. We judge. It says in Pirkei Avot, Ethics of Our Fathers, Al Do not judge your fellow until you have reached their place. I believe in To Kill a Mockingbird, it said something along the lines of, don't judge someone until you've walked around in their shoes, or something along those lines. Yeah, something. It's been a while. Yeah. Is he saying somehow that these things are subjective? He's saying idolatry, subject, on some level subjective. You know, because it was a different time. Different time. Yeah, so I, I want to build up into this. Good point. So point number one is the, mo- this is the most general point. I'm going to go from general to very specific. So the general point is, you can't, there's, we are not equipped to judge what happened a thousand years ago and to pass moral judgment on, on behavior that was done then. Right? That's, less, that's point number one that Menashe tells Ravashi. You cannot judge the world. You cannot judge behaviors from a thousand years ago, a thousand plus years ago. You weren't there. You have no idea what the conditions were. You have no idea what was going on. If you were there, how do you know you would have been any different? You're on your high horse. You're on your soapbox. And you're lecturing. Oh, look at these guys, bad guys. <laughs> Thank you very much. A little respect. A little respect. You have no idea what's going on. And again, I want to... I wanna, there's a lot to move on to, specifically about idolatry, which we're going to do today. Because after all, the, the title of today's class is American Idol. 
But before we get to the idolatry piece of it, I need to share with you what the Alter Rebbe says, the founder of Chabad says, about a similar idea, again, not only looking back a thousand years, even right now today, July 10th, 2022, when we look at someone else. The Alter Rebbe says it's very easy for a person to fall into, a, into the trap of judging someone else and saying, ah, that guy, a lowlife. Unbelievable. How could they? It's very easy to fall into that place. The problem is, you have no idea what's going on inside that person. You have no idea the kind of upbringing, the kind of nature or nurture. You have no idea the kind of challenges that they're facing right now in this moment. And therefore, you have no idea that if that would be you, that you would do anything, that you would do anything different. Sure, where you are, you would do something different. But that's not where they are. They're where they are. Are you with me on this? In other words, assume the totality of that person's life and experience. Assume their genetics. Assume their parenting. Their, their parents' parenting. Assume their upbringing. Assume their education. Assume their current circumstances. Assume their specific yates or horror evil inclination. Their specific vices. Assume all of that. And now ask, your, and now ask the question, answer the question, or ask yourself the question, would you do anything different? And there's, well, yeah, hold on one second. And there's no way that you can answer that question. That's the point. Not, not, sorry, not, not you, though. I'm saying there's no way that one can answer that question. Why? Because we're not there. Because we're not there. So the author Rebbe says, when you find yourself in a place of judgment, when you find yourself slipping into that judgmental place, remember this. You are not them. You have no idea what's going on. Had you, he talks about the scholar, like the tzaddik. The tzaddik who sits isolated in the study hall studying Torah and davening, praying all day. And then he hears about or sees, you know, some untoward un, un, uh, behavior by somebody, you know, out there in the world. And the tzaddik might get, might get judgy. I guess if he gets judgy, he's not really a tzaddik, whatever. This individual, this spiritual individual might get a little bit judgy about this other person. He says, wait a second. You don't face those challenges. You're not in the, you're not in the marketplace. Right? You're not walking around the marketplace. You're not encountering, I mean, that was, I guess, the place of, uh, this is before the internet, so the marketplace. Right? You're, not, you're not walking the streets. You don't know what temptations are out there. You have no idea. And you're going to be judgy about this person. You've successfully sequestered yourself. Right? I don't know, successfully, not successfully. You have sequestered yourself. You've isolated yourself. And so now you're, 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 you're pointing fingers at someone else. You have no idea. If you were in that person's shoes completely, with their soul, with their, their spiritual, emotional, psychological um, makeup, if you had exactly their identity and exactly their challenges, there's no telling that you would be any better. In fact, you might be worse. You might be worse. You might have, have succumbed to even additional uh, temptations that they have not succumbed to. There's no way to know. That's point number one that Menashe tells Ravashi. Point number one is, you did not live a thousand years ago. You have no idea what life was like then. You have no idea the challenges that were faced. If you were there, how do you know that you wouldn't be at the front of the line worshiping idols? Oh, today, oh yeah, we don't worship idols. A thousand years ago. That's the question. When it was in, 
in vogue. Today's class, I'm going to explain what happened between those two periods in time, between 2,700 years ago and 1,700 years ago. Why did idolatry fall out of fashion? That's what I'm going to get to today. The story is incredible. It will knock your socks off. We're going to get there soon. But, oh, one second. Toba, you wanted to jump in? Yeah. I agree with everything that you said and all the background. But what if I committed a horrible crime? And yeah, or someone else did. And I understand it. That person still has to be taken to trial and judged. I mean, you can't just let them off scot-free because you understand. Yeah, 100%. That's coming really close to what's going on now with all the crime. Well, yeah, so... So, like a different digression, in which case we'll leave it alone. No, 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 no. It's a very good question. It's not a digression at all. It's a very good question, and it helps center the the the, the conversation. What I was speaking about is is individuals judging each other. There are people that are that are uh, whose job it is to judge each other, judge others, judges, right? Like a, a the the same Torah that talks about not judging others also says you have to have a system of law and order. Law and justice. So a justice system has to have judges that are judging, that are doing exactly, holding people to an to a um, to an absolute, right, a universal standard of, of behavior, ethics, and morality. So that has to be. That has to be. What we're talking about here is the everyday judging and 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 gossiping and that sort of thing, looking at others and saying, "Oh, that person, blah blah blah." Right. That's what we're. Yeah. But you're right. No, there has to be law and order, 100%. And that has to be based on an objective standard. That can't be, well, you know, we understand. Although, although there is a place for compassion and justice. So you're raising a very important point that, that kind of, you know, presents the, I would say, well, like an absolute uh, um, framework. But at the same time, our, um, I would call it maybe more amateur judgment, right? The at-home game, right? So that is where we're encouraged not to. Um, yeah. I'm sorry, I want to ask, because I, I love it. I think it's a great point. We shouldn't judge each other. But isn't there, I mean, this is like a special case. I mean, this is idolatry. This is like the, the you know, and you start off, you're just saying, you know, the, the whole, you know, the religious monotheistic. Yeah. So this is like so, like the worst sin. Good, good. And don't we have, don't we even have, have you know, if I'm not mistaken, there's, there's sages in our history who took death rather than disavow sure. God. Not only sages. Uh, people, yeah. yeah, we're gonna get. We're gonna. But, 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 but I'm just saying that, that isn't this. Kind yeah, of, yeah, yeah. I, I get it. We should You're saying it's the third rail. It's a big deal. I think, it's like, I think you have to hear the whole story because the way this evolves is just crazy. Yeah, they, they get rid of the. Yeah, exactly, David. Uh, right. So right. stay tuned for more excitement. Yes, Michael asking a great question. Hold that thought. Yeah, Ed. So it seems like. Um, beginning of the story in the Mishnah that these three kings are being judged negatively. But yes. When Ravashi refers to him, he refers to him as a colleague, which seems like more of a positive spin right, right off the bat. Like he's already saying he's an equal to ours. Yeah. And then... Then the dream then happens. The dream comes and says that ain't enough. You have to <laughs> it even further. I love it. Ed's asking a great question. The Mishnah is the one that really uh, slams them, including Menashe. The Mishnah says they have no share in the world to come. The Mishnah is what really, you know... Uh, just wipes the floor with them. Ravashi was being nice, colleague, respectful. Apparently, it wasn't enough for Menashe. That's a point. Your que- I, your question stands, or your comment stands. That's right. It, it's it's yeah. It's a very important observation. The mission is telling us something objective that these three don't have a share in the world to come. Now, 
we would have to look, do a deep dive into that, uh, into that entire discussion to see, is that the final, is that the way it stands in the final analysis? Um, but hold on, hold on one second. But Ravashi, Ravashi seems to like elevate it a little bit, but he's like, he's still being a little bit casual about that relationship. You know, colleagues, like our, our buddies, and Menashe says, still remain with respect. Maybe it ties into what we said before. It doesn't mean that there aren't consequences, but it means in the context of, of us judging the other, we have to be careful on how we judge the other. In other words, relative to themselves, they still violated, right? Still violated something that they shouldn't have done. But for us to judge, so for God to judge, for halacha, whatever, that's one thing. But for us to judge, how do we know that we would be any different? In other words, the moral superiority, there's two issues. There's the judgment in the context of did, they, did you serve idols or not? Either yes or no, objectively. And then there's the moral superiority. Like, I, if I, I wouldn't have done it. And, the, the, and the, the response to that is, really? How do you know? How do you know you'd be any different? One second, yeah, Donna. Does that make sense a little bit? Not really? Sort of? Yeah. Okay. I mean, the other side of the point is that you know, everything is supposed to be redemptive possibility, but I guess there are the few capital crimes, right? Which idolatry is one of them. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I'm just a little concerned about no afterlife redemption when. Yeah, so Donna's asking, what's, what's up with this no portion of the world to come? That seems very, uh, very harsh. Again, I, I would have to, we would have to look up all the Talmudic and post-Talmudic conversation about the final verdict with these three, it's an excerpt from the Mishnah. I didn't, I've looked it up before and I, I don't remember the conclusion. Anyway, I wish I, I wish I had a more definitive <laughs> response. But I think it's important to understand that somebody can be guilty of, of an offense, at, like objectively they're guilty of an offense, and that doesn't equal the permission for someone else to feel morally superior to that person. Because how do you know that if you were living that life, that you would have acted any different? That's the question. God put that person in a uniquely challenging situation. And that's the choice that they made in that context. How do you know, the bottom line is, how do you know that you, if you were there, if you were that person, that you would have made a different choice? And if you don't know that, then don't judge. Does that mean that they shouldn't be judged by God or by the court? Sure, that's fine. I mean, that's the objective judgment. But us feeling morally superior, even to the extent of colleague, which was a little bit of a, a little bit of a chide, that that is where Menasha calls out, and that's a very important lesson, as we'll see for us. Yeah, Sila, do you want to say something? Uh, yeah, I was thinking about this with uh, a simple example of murder. Is that um, yeah, if somebody's coming for one of my daughters, and they're, to me, obviously, they're going to kill, then I have no hesitation. And, like, all, all bets are off. Right. You know, um, and, uh, you know, so there's definitely something about the situation. But I was also thinking that, too, um, you know, everybody have a path that they have to go through. So if this was his path to come to something greater, for his own self, or, or somebody hearing the story later, maybe. Yep. And uh, who are we to interfere with that work being performed? With the work being done, yeah. 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 So, 
I think we can all we all can relate on some level to challenges that are uniquely ours. I mean, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we'll recognize that we are not perfect, that we have areas in which we struggle and we fail, and somebody else would not struggle in those areas, and to be judged by that would be unfair. I'm saying judged by someone else, someone else who doesn't have that challenge to say, how come you're not mastering that challenge? It's like, hey, buddy, you don't have that challenge. How can you, you judge me for not mastering that challenge? You, you want to try that on? I'm sure you don't, but if you want to try that on, how do you know that you'll be more successful? Now, here's the question. What happens? What changed? Menasha in the dream, Menasha tells Ravashi, Menasha from 2,700 years ago tells Ravashi from 1,600, 1,700 years ago, he tells him that if you were living in my times, you would be the first one running after the idols. And, um, and Ravashi accepts that. The question is, so what did happen? What changed? Did something change? And this is what David mentioned before. This is a very important piece of Talmud. This comes from Tractate Sanhedrin, same tractate. And it's about the slaying of idolatry. This is an unbelievable story. Let me set the stage here. This story takes place now 2,400 years ago. So this is after the first temple was destroyed. I mean, you can imagine after 410 years that were not, uh, they weren't clean years. They were complicated years of the first temple standing, filled with corruption on a practical level. Not all the years were full of corruption, but there was enough corruption, both material and spiritual corruption going on to uh, create a bit of a, of, a, um, of a blemish on this temple. God takes away the temple. It's destroyed by the Babylonians, and the Jewish people are exiled for 70 years. This is known as the Babylonian exile. In Hebrew, Galut Bavel. Bavel is... Babylonia, Galut, of course, means exile. Galut Bavel, the Babylonian exile. The Jews are exiled for seven decades, at the end of which they return to the land of Israel. Now, the land of Israel, now, not all the Jews return to Israel. Some remain in Babylonia. There are communities there that, from the time of that exile, that remain there. Babylonia is modern-day Iraq, some parts of Iraq. Anyway, but many Jews did return Many, if not most, Jews did return to Israel and Jerusalem, and an effort was made to rebuild the temple. And they did, ultimately building the temple a second time. This is known as the Second Holy Temple. The Second Temple stood for 420 years until it was ultimately destroyed by the Roman Empire, by the Romans, in the year 69 of the Common Era. So that's just a bit of, a, of the span. The first temple stood, built by Solomon, destroyed by the Bible, by, built by Solomon, Stands for 410 years, destroyed by the Babylonians. 70-year gap. And then second temple is built, lasts for 420 years, destroyed by the Romans. Was there corruption in the second temple? There was, according, so in our tradition, the first temple was destroyed because of idolatry and other sins like that. The second temple was destroyed because of sinat chinam, infighting, baseless hatred. People, Jews, not getting along within, within their own camps. Um, and by the way, the point has been made, and the Rebbe pointed this out many times, the first temple was destroyed because of these big sins, idolatry, only remained destroyed for 70 years. The second temple was destroyed because of baseless hatred, 
yeah, fighting with each other, not physically, but just, you know, or also physically, um, just the not getting along with each other, we're still, we're still waiting for a third temple. It's been almost 2,000 years. So we see number, number one, which is more, it's hard to rank, you know, sins. Sins ranked, it's like a BuzzFeed article. But like sins, you know, like which is more severe or maybe which one we haven't yet fixed. It's still going on. But let's rewind a second. At the beginning of the Second Temple era, one of the leading, the leading prophet of the time was Nehemiah. In Hebrew, Nehemiah. I don't know. Sorry, did I say in Hebrew? I meant in English. In English, Nehemiah. In Hebrew, Nehemiah. Easier, easier for me to say Nehemiah, so I'm going to say Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a prophet at the time when the Jews were returning back to Israel following the 70 years of exile. The people came to Nehemiah, to the prophet, and they said to him, we got a problem. We're going to rebuild this temple, and idolatry is still in our midst. So what's going to happen is, we're going to build a temple again, and it's going to again get destroyed because we're still serving idols. Idolatry is still rampant. And so they took the incredible step to attempt to slay, listen to what I'm about to say, to slay the very temptation to serve idols. The force, the drive to serve idols, they attempted to slay in the times of Nehemiah. Let's read the story. Back inside. Back inside. Stay with me. Hold on. This is not right. One second. <clears throat> this is from Nehemiah. Can I ask a quick question? Yes. So my understanding, I don't remember hearing this this morning, but my understanding is that at this time, like the entire nation was able to prophesize, and that was part of the issue with the idolatry. They were so able to see ahead themselves, they didn't feel the need for anyone else? Could be. Uh, it's very possible. I'm not... Ken uh, Zain, as they say in Yiddish. So it, it makes a lot of sense that there were more. I don't know if everybody was a prophet. Maybe there were more. Maybe pro- prophecy was more prolific or more proliferated, and uh, and that led to this to this thing. But the story is is incredible. So let's let's take let's take a look at this opening verse. This is from the book of Nehemiah nine four. They cried out in a loud voice to the Lord their God. What did they say in that prayer? Again, this is from the Talmud Tractate Sanhedrin. Rav Yehuda says, and some say it is Rav Yonatan who says. Whoa, whoa, baya, baya. This evil inclination for idol worship is what destroyed the temple and burned the sanctuary and murdered the righteous ones and caused the Jewish people to be exiled from their land. And it still dances among us. It still affects us. Didn't you give it to us solely for the purpose of our receiving reward for overcoming it? We do not want it, nor do we want its reward. In other words, all temptation, negative temptation, is given to a human being in order for us ideally, to reject it and become empowered 
gain strength through the rejection of the negative. You with me? It's like uh, weight training, resistance, right? You put resistance to become stronger. It's like God gives us moral and spiritual resistance, not to fail, but to become stronger. Well, what if a person says, I can't, I can't lift. It's, you're actually hurting me. I'm going to rip muscle. Like, I can't lift that. It's too much weight. Take, take it off. Take it off the bar. I can't. You with me? So that's what they're asking God. They're saying, you've, you've given us a temptation for idolatry. It's too, it, we can't lift it. We can't push back against it. We can't. You gave it to us for its reward, for the strength that we would, we would, we would amass by rejecting it, but we can't do it. We can't summon that energy. Listen to this. The people fasted for three days and prayed for mercy. In response to their prayer, a note fell for them from the heavens in which was written truth, emes, emet. A note fell from heaven with the three letters, emet, which indicates that God accepted their request. Rabbi Hanina says, conclude from it that the seal of the Holy One, blessed be He, is truth. This is something we've had before in Kabbalah and Kafi. The seal of God is truth. God's signature, as it were, is truth. When God says, you know when you're signing documents? <laughs> when you're, a deal's going on, you've got to get all the, all the parties' consent, sign for days, e-signatures, right? The people are praying. Let's make a deal, God. You take away the urge to serve idols. And what are we going to do? And then we won't serve idols. Deal? We're signing on it. Are you signing on it? MS. Emmet. God's signature falls down from heaven. Deal. The form of a fiery lion cub came forth from the chamber of the Holy of Holies. Zechariah, the prophet, said to the Jewish people, This is the evil inclination for idol worship. When they caught hold of one of its hairs, when, when, they, when they caught hold of it, one of its hairs fell out. And it let out a shriek of pain that was heard. For 400 parasangs parse, they said, What shall we do to kill it? Perhaps heaven will have mercy upon it if we attempt to kill it, as it will certainly scream even more. The prophet said to them, Throw it into a container made of lead, and cover it with lead, as lead absorbs sound. All ye sound technicians out there, now you know. As it is written, and he said, this is the evil one, and he cast it down into the midst of the measure, and he cast the stone of lead upon its opening, all from the book of Zechariah, Zechariah. They followed this advice and were freed of the evil inclination for idol worship. Let's stop here. The Talmud thus relates what we've just read. This is a very famous piece of Talmud. The Talmud relates that at a certain time in history, again, seventh. 2,400 years ago, the Jewish people got together and they prayed and fasted and through their prayer and fasting and supplication, they slew, they executed, they eradicated the desire to serve idols. Let's continue. When they saw that the evil inclination for idol worship was delivered into their hands as they requested, the sages said, Since it is an auspicious time, let us pray for mercy concerning the evil inclination for sin concerning sexual matters. Hey, if we're going after vices, let's go after that one too. That's also a very strong challenge for human beings. They prayed for mercy and it was also delivered into their hands. Done. No more desire for idolatry and no more desire for sexual matters the sages imprisoned it that inclination 
for three days. At that time, people searched for a one-day-old fresh egg for the sick, but could not find one. Since, commentary, since the inclination to reproduce was quashed, the chickens stopped laying eggs. They said, what should we do if we pray for half, that only half its power be annulled? Nothing will be achieved because heaven does not grant half gifts, only whole gifts. What do they do? They gouge out its eyes. And this was effective in limiting it to the extent that a person is no longer aroused to commit incest with his close relatives. That is the Talmudic piece. You with me on this? Yes. Let's let's unpack this. Let's unpack this. Again, it's a ve- it's a very classic piece of Talmud, and also a very um, impactful piece of Talmud. The Talmud essentially says, again, I'm just recapping. It's all for the sake of clarity. The Talmud says that there was a very strong desire to serve idols at the time. And they said, we cannot resist, we cannot withstand the temptation. They prayed to God, for God to eradicate it, and He did. And then they moved on to matters uh, um, pertaining to intimacy, and God also then removed that, and they said, whoops, we went too far. And then there was some sort of compromise there as we read. The commentaries explain as follows. The desire for idolatry then... Let me pause before before I continue. When was the last time any of us around this table or online, when was the last time you had a burning desire to bow down to a little statue? When was the last time? I'm going to answer the question for you. Never. Never. In fact, you're probably wondering, why would I ever have a desire to bow down to a little statue? doesn't make any sense. But there are desires that you do have. So that you can relate to. But that one you can't. Why not? We just read it. That's why. The desire for idolatry, the Talmud is comparing it to the desire for physical intimacy. Just like we know that desire, right? So that's, that's how that desire was for idolatry. It was on that level. It was like a, I need to serve an idol. I need to bow down to an idol today. Like I just, I just need to do it. Why? An inner urge. An urge to worship an idol. Urge to bow down to an idol. It sounds mashuga today, right? It sounds crazy. You know why? Because of what we just read. Because of that story. That temptation is now removed. Does that you're, you're with me on this? So then in our, our text, there's no more idolatry. Correct. The idolatry. Now, it doesn't mean that today's whole class is that there are other forms of idolatry today that we do have. But the bow, classic idolatry, bowing down to a little statue, worshiping an image of the sun, moon, and stars. I don't know about you, but when was the last time you felt like you woke up in the morning, you're like, man. Just got, I really want to bow down to an idol today. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. It's not a thing. doesn't get us excited. It's just not a thing. When did it not become a thing? 2,400 years ago, at the times of the Second Temple. They built the Second Temple. They're like, oh man, this is going to get destroyed again because we're still, the, the temptation is still here. They prayed and fasted, and God said, God listened to acquiesced to their request and said, you know what? 
This one I'll take out. This one I'll take out. You won't have this desire anymore. The other desires, still have. Still have. That's still, that's still that's alive and well. But that desire, we don't have anymore. Understand the original dialogue from the first story. The dream of Ravashi and Menashe. Ravashi says, Menashe, a colleague. And Menashe says, hold up. If you were there, you would have lifted up the hem of your cloak and run after me to serve idols. In other words, post-eradication of this Yetzirah, post-eradication of this desire to serve idols, you're going to sit and judge me for serving idols? You have no idea what that urge felt like. You, we now have a deeper understanding of the Talmud of Peace, the original Talmud of Peace. Are you guys with me on this? Menashe says to Ravashi in a dream, you live your life without a temptation to bow down to an idol. You don't have that anymore. You know why? Because the sages um, centuries earlier eradicated it. I lived when it was still kicking, when it was still alive and well. If you lived then, trust me, trust me, we would be arm in arm running to serve idols together. Or you would be ahead of the pack. Make sense? We don't have the temptation to bow down to an idol today. We don't. We don't. And the reason is because that temptation was eradicated. By and large, it was eradicated. We have other temptations. Again, if you want to somehow conceive of what that temptation might have been like, very simple. In your own mind, in your own head, think of something that you do have a temptation for and then replace that with idolatry. And then imagine if that same drive, that same fire burned for idolatry, what would that look like? And yet, and here's the great pivot of the class, and yet, despite the fact that we don't have the urge to worship idols in the classic sense today, despite the fact that the Talmud says that God eradicated that Yetzirah, that evil inclination, in the form of a fiery lion cub, that that was put in lead, almost sounds like a vampire or some situation like that, right? Don't you kill vampires with lead? Am I wrong here? Oh, what? Oh, I don't know. Isn't something, doesn't something have lead? No? Am I wrong? Is that zombie apocalypse? What is going on here? All right, anyway. A lead bullet. A lead bullet is for what? Kill a vampire. Okay, yeah, so I was right. Oh, silver versus lead. Silver bullet. Silver. Oh, that's not lead. All right. I should probably stick to my day job. Uh, um, not, uh, <laughs> huh? Oh, garlic. Sunlight, garlic, silver, vampires. Anyway, it's all good. Um, here's the point. The great pivot is here. The great pivot is here. The great pivot is about to happen. Although we don't have the temptation today to carve a little carving of a sun and then to bow down, to go on our, uh, uh, on our stomachs and our faces and to bow down to that. I mean, again, I can only speak for myself. We don't have that temptation today because... God already removed that. It's not exciting. But we have our own forms of idolatry today. When God removed, eradicated that temptation from the world, He only took it away from that classical form of idolatry. 
But what idolatry means and signifies, that challenge still exists today, and let's break that down. What is idolatry? What does it mean to worship a little figure of the sun, moon, and stars? In fact, let's go back to an even more basic question. Why did people ever worship images of the sun, moon, and stars? And the answer is very simple. Imagine you were a farmer. Imagine if you lived off the land many, many, many years ago before technology. Imagine if your existence is based on the land and you need rain to fall and you need sunlight to shine and you need the exact conditions to be aligned in order for your stuff to grow and then it grows. You might catch yourself thanking the sun at some point. Are you with me on this? You might say, thank God. No, I want to mix. Um, thank you, sun, for providing the sunlight. Thank you, rain, for providing the rain. Thank you, planets, for whatever his planets do. You with me on this? You might find yourself thanking the forces, celestial forces, that you believe are or that you see are helping you with practical blessings. You may catch yourself in that space. And you might further justify it by saying, yes, I believe in God as the CEO of existence, but practically speaking, God has farmed out pieces of this operation to division heads. The sun is in charge of the light and the heat. The moon is in charge of the tides. The stars are in charge of whatever they're in charge of, right? All that stuff. So God has given responsibility to these various pieces. And thus, it actually is the right thing to do. It's not only permissible, but it's even the right thing to do to honor the officers, the ministers, to honor the division heads, right? The managers that God has put into position. Does that make sense? Maimonides explains this is how idolatry began. How does idolatry begin? The first human beings knew about God. It was obvious that they came from God. Adam knew it. Eve knew it. Their kids knew it. But at some point, they made the following calculation. Yes, God started this. But who did God put in control? All these other layers. You with me? All these other layers. And God trusted them and empowered them and gave them choice. And so now, let's acknowledge and thank them. And then it further, the calculation went further. One second. Let's not only acknowledge them, but let's pray to them. Because if we need to tweak the amount of sun or the amount of rain or the amount, if we need something, if we want something a little bit different, well, then it probably makes sense to actually direct our requests to the directors that God has put into place. Are you with me? Because God probably doesn't want to get involved in all the details. Why would God want to micromanage every detail of creation? Certainly, if God put all these layers into place, it's certainly because He doesn't want to be hands-on. He'd rather be playing, you know, 18 holes at Pebble Beach and chilling like that and then putting all these other forces in place to direct hands-on creation. So let's acknowledge, thank, and even request of those forces. Does that make sense? And then it evolved further to the point where subsequent generations only knew about the sun, moon, and stars and totally forgot there was anything even above that 
and they denied God altogether. You with me on this? Maimonides says that is the evolution of idolatry. Until Abraham came, and Abraham said, no, 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 no. God is in charge of everything. Everything else is, does n- nothing else has power or control. And the difference, the pivot, the distinction between what the idolaters thought and what Abraham realized is the following. I'm going to use an example of art. We have some paintings on the wall over here. For those of you joining online, right, we have some paintings right there. Beautiful paintings. Imagine, imagine you behold a work of art and the artist is standing right next to it. Imagine you say to the artist, wow, that's so beautiful. What kind of brush did you use? What kind of brush did you use? It's probably all about the brush. The brush probably is what did it. You with me on this? Probably the brush. How would the artist feel if you said that? A little bit offended, right? It's not the brush. It's the artist. It's the artiste, right? Donna, when you're making jewelry, right? You're designing, creating jewelry. Imagine somebody says, so tell me what type of like clamps do you use for the... Now, if they wanted it for information, but if the insinuation is that the, that the artistry is, 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 is lying in the tool, it's offensive. Not the tool. The tool is just the tool. In the language of Judaism, it's kegarzim b'yanachoytzev. It's like the hammer in the hands of the craftsman. You don't thank the hammer. You thank the craftsman. The sun and the moon and the stars are like hammers in God's hand. God is not a micromanager. God is doing everything directly utilizing tools, yes, but those tools do not have their own consciousness, autonomy, choice, decision-making abilities. The tool is merely a tool. Therefore, worshiping the sun, acknowledging the sun, thanking the sun, is, while one could misconstrue that as being a good thing, a nice thing, is actually offensive to the cosmic artist with a capital A, i.e. God. It's like praising the paintbrush with the artist standing there. It's like, wow, uh, excuse me, can you move away? Let me see that paintbrush. It's like, yeah. So in the Mishkin, God did put art, artistic soul into the tzatzel, the two artisans. So it was their inner... Yeah, so when it comes to human beings, the question is, how does that work with free choice? You know, Are we also tools or do we have already our own divine-like autonomy, that's a, that, that opens up a, a, a whole additional layer of conversation about this. Um, that's a little bit more complex. But if we stick to the sun, moon, and stars, the, the realm, those celestial bodies that were classically uh, worshipped in ancient times by, by pagan worship, if we look at those forces in nature that were worshipped, the understanding, the Jewish understanding of the mistake is that they are only, they're not even intermediaries. They're only tools that God uses to facilitate God's desire on earth. God uses the tool of the sun to heat. God uses the tool of the moon to control the tides. It's God using tools. It's not tools that somehow have their own managerial position and managerial autonomy and, and, and their own volition. Are you with me on this? 
That's the core mistake. Now, what this means is that believing that the tool has power. Sorry again. I, if we want, uh, therefore, a Jewish definition of idolatry, it means, look, the easy understanding of idolatry is, I don't believe, is somebody saying, I don't believe there's a God. Or believe there's multiple gods. But that's it's not subtle enough. The most subtle form of idolatry, subtle form of the definition of idolatry is ascribing power to anything other than God. You with me on this? Ascribing power, power to anything other than God is idolatry. You with me on this? To understand that God uses the sun is fine. It's a tool. Does, that, does, does the sun have power? No, 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 no. God has power. God uses the sun. The moon, does the moon have power? The moon does not have power. God, does the hammer have, does the brush have power? Of course not. The brush can't paint the painting. When an artist holds a brush, then the artist paints the painting. You would never say the brush created the painting. I know now we're at a time of artificial intelligence where you can speak commands. You can type commands and Google will create, yes, this is legit, will create artwork based on text. It's text to art, text to image. I've seen like avocado Hasidic rabbi mentoring avocado Hasidic student and it literally produces some avocado Hasidic looking people dialoguing. Um, yeah, this is all legit. This is 100% legit in the last few weeks. It's a thing. It's not in public release, but if you Google it, text to art, you'll, you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. So I know we live in that time where the tools now seem to have power. But honestly, it's all driven by the information that's been fed to the, to the artificial intelligence. Artificial intelligence is not really artificial. It's not out of nowhere. It's all being driven by data. Billions and billions of, of I don't know, lines or <laughs> pixels of data and all of that is driving it. But that, all that notwithstanding, you would never say that the brush painted the artwork. You would never say that the, the clamp, uh, I don't know if that's right, uh, the little, uh, made the jewelry. You would never say that the hammer built the house. You wouldn't say that. It's the artist, it's the jeweler, and it's the, um, and it's the builders, the contractor. The, the tool is just a tool. Anything that ascribes power to something other than God is idolatry. Because all of the forces of nature are simply, are simply tools that God uses to facilitate His will and existence. Which takes us to the theme that we're going to read inside for a few minutes. Yeah. Just real quick. Even the artificial, artificial intelligence example, all algorithms are programmed by a human. Right. Right. It's still being programmed. How to, number one, humans are feeding or whatever, are, are creating the framework for information to be fed and are deciding how it should interpret and correct. It's all based on parameters that are human driven. Until computers are coding themselves, but even if they're coding themselves, it's based on someone coding them how to code themselves. It's ultimately attributed to, to this stuff. Based on all of this, we can get into today's reading. We'll read it for a few minutes. It's very, very powerful. It talks about what we're going to study inside <clears throat> talks about the notion of a person believing 
that their job, that their work is what creates wealth. The blessings come from God. For somebody to say, well, I believe in God, but money comes from my boss, my paycheck, is to ascribe power to something other than God, which is essentially akin to idolatry. I know it's subtle. I know that, that we prayed 2,400 uh, years ago. We prayed and we eradicated idolatry. Yes, we no longer feel the need to bow down to statues. We no longer feel the urge. But we're still challenged with the temptation of believing that other things have power over us, that other forces have dominion, have control, have, have, um, have choice in our lives other than God. We believe that on so many levels. And so as we'll see inside for the last few minutes of today's session, that we have, the time that we have together, we'll see inside how he describes a scenario where somebody believes in God and believes in the importance of prayer and the importance of Torah study, and yet will still say, I wish I could study, I wish I could pray, I wish I could go to shul, I wish I could daven, but I can't. i got to make money. Believing that the money is coming from another source outside of God, and thus prioritizing that force, the job, over a connection with God who's really running the show. You with me on what I'm saying here? That is where, that is where the twist comes in. Where a person says, I believe in God, and prayer is important, and study is important, but I've got to make money, I've got to earn a living. And to earn a living, I've got to do all these things. One second, where does all that come from? Are you believing that that has its own autonomy, that has its own power, that has its own control over your life? That meaning the job, the work that you're doing, that therefore you should pray or dedicate your time and effort to that at the expense of God? That is also but a tool. Never mistake the tool for something that has something that has that uh, that power and control. Okay, so let's um, let's read this inside. This is going to be chapter. Oh, that's awkward. Coffee break for a quick second. Let me get uh, let me get the copies. I'll be right back. They're on my desk. I brought the other copies. One second. All right, guys. You got. We have enough copies. Okay. All right. We're gonna. We're going to read chapter three of Discourse twenty-five. I'm gonna pull it up on the screen. Um, it's a quick read. It's a powerful read, and this will, uh, this will close out today's discussion. Um, chapter 3 is on page, it's very small, these copies, for whatever reason, 358. Page 358, are we good? 
Okay, it's on page 358 in your copies. Um, Hurried businessman. He says, there are numerous merchants and working men who are pious and cherish prayer and scheduled study in different classes in the revealed Torah. That means, um, you know, Jewish law or Hasidus, the mystical studies, and are deeply troubled when they cannot pray with the congregation or cannot participate in the public Torah classes. Others make valiant efforts to pray with the congregation, but hurriedly dash off the prayers and then rush off to their business or work. It does not occur to them to take part in some Torah class. Besides the fact that they are so busy that they simply have no free time for Torah, their minds and thoughts are so fully occupied with business and worldly affairs that they are unreceptive to a Torah thought. Their prayer too is diluted with alien thoughts to the extent that frequently they don't even know what they are reciting and which psalm they are reading. Their tongues are so accustomed to the text that the words flow forth, lips moving, hearts elsewhere. Nevertheless, they do have the yoke of praying with the congregation. There are yet others who are so busy that, they only, that only on Monday and Thursday can they be in the synagogue to pray. In other words, he goes through different types of people. Some people are really dedicated to Torah study and prayer. Some are dedicated but distracted. Some are not so dedicated. They're only there a few times a week. Let's continue, page 360. He says, The collective cause is that because of the demands of their work, they cannot pray with the congregation. And certainly, they are unable to study Torah. Their minds are too involved with their business for Torah. As a result of this corrupt way of living all week long, their li- they live lives not truly human and even worse. This is the prophet's cry of distress. The ox knows its master and the donkey its owner's feeding trough. Israel does not know my people do not give thought from Isaiah. In other words, even the animals know the hand that feeds them. And us? We're ignorant sometimes to the fact that it's coming from God. In addition, their odd and corrupt way of living during the week has repercussions on the Shabbat day. When they are finally free of their weekday obligations, they use the opportunity for mundane pursuits. For one thing, their strenuous efforts all week leave them exhausted on Shabbos, so they must simply rest that day. Then too, because they become coarsened by the way they live all week, instead of utilizing the sacred Shabbat day for its own purpose of rest from work and to be free to pray and study Torah more than all week, These people profane the Shabbat holiness with all sorts of trivial activities. What he's describing here is a situation where a person believes. It's not even a conscious belief, but it's so ingrained that a person believes that, of course, the money comes from the work. And in order to get that, I have to focus all my efforts there. And so I don't have time to pray. I don't have time to study Torah. That not only corrupts the week, but it corrupts Shabbat. Because now in Shabbat, when there's no work, we're still either thinking about the work or exhausted from the work or so accustomed to mundane thoughts that on Shabbat, when we don't have to think about it, we're still thinking about it anyway. The truth is, Yetzirah at work. The truth is that the foundation of this person's whole structure, his intense occupation with his business, with his conviction that it is impossible to study and pray properly because he might, God forbid, lose something as a result and others lose money, that all of this is false imagination and a big folly. The, The book is called Overcoming Folly. This is a big shtus. It's a big folly. For if, God forbid, 
there has been no allotment and elicitation of beneficence from on high, God forbid, what effort can all of his efforts have? In other words, if God is not giving the blessing, then all the work in the world is not going to make a difference. And if there has been the allotment and elicitation of beneficence from on high, then tremendous efforts are not necessary. Just a little effort will suffice, i.e. he need just fashion a garment for the beneficence. His endless preoccupations and the fact that they are a hindrance to Torah study and prayer are nothing more than the nonsense, the foolishness of the Yetzirah, the evil inclination. He demonstrates that, God forbid, he deems the garment, i.e. the business, as the primary factor and that it is the source of his livelihood. Therefore, he is occupied so intensely with it and also with schemes, for he considers them as primary factors. Spiritual idolatry 362, and here is the culmination of all of this. And this is how we, this is you know, for an hour and, I don't know, 20 minutes, this was what we talked about. This is tantamount to idolatry as noted above, that one bows to the sun and the moon, for one considers them the benefactors, when in truth they are merely agents and instruments of the blessing, as explained above. The same applies when emphasizing business as the key to livelihood, resulting in intense involvement and scheming. This is tantamount to bowing down, he, he, he analogized it to actually physically bowing down. For physical idolatry is bowing, lowering the head. Likewise, devoting the head, the mind, and the faculties to business uh, to the extent that he has no time for Torah and prayer is a spiritual form of bowing identical to, to idol worship, God forbid. And this is how the chapter ends, and this is where we'll end today. It's a powerful idea. And I apologize because my voice apparently has given out at this point. But the point is like this, that... What is idolatry? Idolatry means believing that something else is in control. Something else has power. And it doesn't only mean believing in it, but it means when a person bows down to an idol, they were full prostrate, uh, prostrating themselves. They were fully bowing down where their, their heads, their entire body is on one one plane. So normally, as we exist upright, the head is above the heart, and the heart's above the limbs, the extremities. So like we have a hierarchy of, of the mind ruling the heart, and mind and the heart ruling the activities that we do. But when we bow down, everything is on the same level. The head is on the level with the heart, and the head and the heart are level with the feet and the hands. Everything is on the same level. It's all on the same plane. It means a complete subjugation. It means a lowering of the head down to the, to the lowest of levels. It means saying that my head is no longer guiding me intellectually. I'm no longer being guided by my values. I'm being guided by whatever the most immediate need. I'm no longer seeing things for the way they are, but I'm seeing things for what I need. It's, it's an expediency. It's, it's something that I need to do right now. I'm, I'm, I'm in a reactive, uh, I'm in a, um, I'm in a um, natural, reactive, responsive instinctual place and not in a cerebral place, not in a spiritual place. That's what bowing down is. And in this case, what does it mean to bow down to idols? It means to believe and to put my head into that space, bowing down, to say that my work is in charge of my livelihood and God does not play much of a role. And therefore, God, I love you, but I have no time for you this morning. I got to go to work to make a living. And God's like, you're going to make a living without me? Good luck. <laughs> How are you going to pull that one up? You, we say to God, I, I would love to pray this morning to you. I would love to study your Torah. I would love to connect for a few minutes, but sorry, I can't. It's like someone saying to a loved one, I, I love you so much. I want to spend time with you, but I got to go. You know, I got I to gotta run to do something, whatever it is. It's like, it's like, I mean, I don't want, it's not, I, I feel like opening up like more conversations here, but it's like someone saying, you know, to kids, like, I, you know, I have no time to spend with you because I'm going to work to earn money 
to make your life better. It's like, okay, but my life would be better if we spent some time together, right? Like, let's have that also. So it's like, God, I love you, and I believe in you, and you're so important to me, but I got I to earn some money. It's not exactly the same parallel, but whatever. Anyway, I got to earn some money. And God says, okay, how are you going to do that? Well, I got this job. And if I put in the hours and make those deals and make the calls and, and I can put together some stuff, it's going gonna, it's gonna to go big. I'm going to make a ton of money. Without me? Yeah, I don't need you. Just, just, just the job. Just the deals that I... Just my own, my own uh, wisdom. My own cleverness. I'm going to make this work. And God says, okay. Good luck. But we have to know what that is for us. I mean, and without... Just not, not mincing any words because it's too late to mince. It's too late to be diplomatic and you know, time is short. That's idolatry. That's the same thing as idolatry. Idolatry means putting something on equal rank as God, saying, God, you have this power, and job, you have this power. It's equal, you know, putting something on an equal plane as God, or even worse, putting something ahead of God. Putting something ahead of God is likewise idolatry. And in this case, it's misguided. Now, to clarify, it doesn't mean don't go to work. It doesn't mean don't use your head in business. Do all of the above. But don't forget to pray. <laughs> Set your priority in the morning. The first thing should be a little study, meditation, and prayer, and then you go to work. What you're, sta- what you're stating for yourself. Don't worry. God doesn't need pats on the back. God is, has enough self-confidence. He doesn't need, he's not needy. But we're needy. We need to know the truth. We need to be aligned with truth. It's for us. It's for us to know the truth, that God is the source. God is the only source. And all of the success in business is only really going to flow, really going to flow, when we're aligned with that space. Now, it doesn't mean we can't earn money other ways. doesn't mean we can. I'll ask a simple question. Every cent that you've ever earned, has it always gone to pleasant things? It's not about how much money comes in. It's about what it's used for also. Can we say that we're in control of a leaky roof? An appliance that goes out? Uh, God forbid an accident, God forbid a health issue. We're in control of everything? When you think about it, we're in control of very little in life. But we believe that if I go to work, and I can make money. Without God, I don't know. I don't know. I would not take that bet. I would not take that bet. Not without God. And so today we learned another folly. We've been leading up to it for a while. The folly of believing that we are self-made individuals that create our own financial success the truth is, God is behind all of it. And the, the more we plug into that reality, the more it will benefit us, not just spiritually, but also practically in dollars and cents that we can actually enjoy that, that, that foster peace, inner peace, outer peace, peace and health and well-being all around, true blessings that we can actually enjoy. All of that comes when we connect with the source of the blessings. When we don't put the channel on equal footing as the source. We don't put the hammer on an equal space, an equal level, equal rank as the artist himself. And so, it's important, I think, to recall the specific examples that he gives. Question is, in the morning, and this is true every morning, in the morning, do we give some time? It doesn't have to be two hours. It doesn't have to even be an hour. Even five minutes. Even five minutes. Even one minute of sincere focus, thought, and prayer to God. You don't want to go through the whole morning service? It's too too daunting to jump into? No problem. No problem. One prayer. 
one prayer. You want to make up your own prayer? Make up your own prayer. Start with whatever it is, but focus on God. If we can't take a moment to focus on God, you know what it means? It means we're saying that God, you're irrelevant. This is what's important. And that's essentially idolatry. We killed idolatry, but we have our own American idols. In America, we the self-made man is the, the great myth. Self-made man. That's not to take away anyone's efforts. But self-made implies that we don't need God. We need self. We need work. We need clients. We need deals. We need wisdom. We also need God. So number one is give space. Give space and time for God every single day. And number two, and for our own souls. And number two, on Shabbat, when we don't have to think about work. Let's actually experience it the way it was meant to be as a day dedicated to spirituality, not as a day to catch up on sleep from all the work that we did because that's still, that's still adding on to the same problem. It's like I worked so I didn't have time for God during the week because I was working. And then on Shabbat, I don't have time for God because I'm catching up on my sleep. It's like, so when does God get any chance? <laughs> when? On a holiday weekend, on a long weekend, Labor Day, like once a year. When does God get, get, get some chance in, in our lives? Let's make Shabbat the day in which we're all about the source and we throw away the tools and we say, ah, we throw away the paintbrushes and we embrace the artist, the cosmic artist. That's Shabbat. And we can do that a little bit every morning. It's important to start the day off right. It's really hard to start the day off with the tools and then change to the artist kind of, you know, lunchtime. It's hard. It's hard. Start off on the right foot with the right perception, perspective, and the rest of the day will more easily flow and then our blessings will be real blessings. We'll be focused on the truth. The blessings will flow. And what we earn will be experienced in a, in a way of joy and blessing and delightfulness and not need to go to any negativity and mishigasin and all crazy stuff. Make sense? Let's not serve idols. Let's not lift the hem of our... Cl- thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, let's not lift up the hems of our cloaks and run after idols. Let's not run after the, the job first thing in the morning. Yes, go to work. I'm not, trust me, I'm not taking away from work. Go to work, but give some time for God. Uh, Mariana, thank you. Thank you and, and all of you. Thank you for being here. Any questions or comments before we wrap? Questions, comments? Yeah. Okay, for so that the moral of that of the story we went over before, I was almost surprised at first because the fact that there was a part of idleness or idol worship that got eradicated. Because to me, I guess almost part of the moral of the story is even trying to eradicate part of the Yisrael is not going to do what you want because the temple still got destroyed. There still is this other form of idol worship. Yeah. So even I, I felt like I thought that was going to be more part of the story that even the notion to try to wish away that type of evil inclination is folly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Matt's asking a great question, which is really the upshot of today's conversation. When the Jewish people got rid of idolatry, they didn't really get rid of idolatry. They got rid of one manifestation of idolatry. But that urge or that temptation or that desire or that fallacy to put other things on equal footing as God or even put them before God, right, that exists today. And that has never not existed. And so we say, we look at somebody bowing down to an idol, we're like, why would you do that? And yet at the same time, we are 
very much putting things before God. Whether it's, I don't want to get into like literal American, I like celebrity worship and everything, but like we put things in front of our values, in front of our highest truth. We unfortunately do that all the time. And so, yeah, in, in a very real way, that idol is not that at all. Or sorry, that form of idolatry is not that at all. It's also there because of, I don't know if someone's already created this term, but the idea of temporal empathy, having empathy for people across time, be able to see what they're like. And that's mm-hmm. really, and then maybe that's even weirder for America just because we have such a short history that yeah. how can we have empathy for somebody who lived in the year 800 to help right. understand their lives? But that's the thing, part of the story about the judging is it feels like when you're doing that judging, you're towering above the person, looking down at them and saying, oh, I'm so much better than you. That yeah. really is a call against arrogance. Yeah, so Matt's pointing out that the idea of well, the upshot of the story from the Talmud where Vashi is, is judging uh, Manasseh and saying, you know, who lived a thousand years prior. So that was, you know, that's, that's a flawed, it's a flawed concept. And maybe that's an American where, you know, we have, clearly it's not only American because he did it then also. Um, I, who am I to judge him? Right, <laughs> that would be that would be weird. Um, uh, so the point is that there is this cha- there's, there is this challenge or, or temptation to to judge others, other errors, in a negative way. I heard a, a line Rabbi Shusterman mentioned actually yesterday in, in in a sermon. He used the phrase called presentism. Presentism is to make the present better than the past, or to judge the past through the lens of the present, and then to become all you know like. How dare they have done that in the past when it's like, that's kind of what was done. That doesn't mean that it's right for today, but it just means that we just have to be careful with how we, you know, how we look at the past. Um, and that's, that's also a very, very real ramification from that story is about how we, how we view the past and how we you know, don't always have the luxury of applying what we know today to what was known then. Rabbi? Yeah, Yaakov. Um, what about um, things that, um, you know, not, not things like saying consciously that, um, you know, putting putting uh, priority over working versus praying, but what about, you know, all the we'll see. subconscious um, things that really run our lives? I, I think our subconscious run our lives, and it's, you know, you did mention belief, and it's almost like, our erroneous beliefs have now become subconscious and our, our, our subconscious truly believes that, you know, we need to be slaves to these addictions. You know, these things run our lives. Um, we're not good enough. So therefore, we need to self-sabotage. You know, it seems like these are the real, um, I guess, taskmasters or, or the, the real um, uh, idols that really run our lives is, yep. is our things that and we all I mean many people self-sabotage I mean we're we could I think we could all be uh, achieving a lot greater things in each one of our lives if we don't self-sabotage and don't believe that oh we can't do it so we don't we just assume we can't succeed so we stop yeah 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 very good point and and I think what it comes down to is um is strengthening our, our connection with with the source with the artist and not with the tools and yeah it, it's it's a very it's a it, the, the challenge is embedded deep within the fabric of our individual psyches and within the fabric of, of humankind itself, within life itself. As Matt pointed out, that, that temptation really 
the form, the manifestation of the temptation may have been eradicated. But the core temptation itself has never gone anywhere. It's just taken on a different form. Yes, no longer will they bow down. Will, they, will, will we be tempted to bow down to statues of stone? Okay. But will we, will we still worship self? Will we still worship money? Will we still worship fame? Will we still worship honor? Will we still worship um, all sorts of things that are not God? And the answer is yes. And that's the, that's the challenge of our times. And that's the challenge of, I would say, all time. Um, but in every generation, I would say there's another form of that idol and that idol worship. In every generation, you know, it manifests itself. And for every person, in a different way. So for some people, it's money. For some people, it's honor. For some people, it's... Everybody is running after something, right, other than God. And the question is, you know, how do we, uh, how do we recognize that and move away from it? So in this, in this discourse, I mean, there's dozens of follies. I don't know dozens, but many, many follies that are mentioned. It's a 300-plus it's a, you know, page book, and there's a lot of them. So this one is about the folly of believing that money is in my control, and I don't need God for it. And therefore, I, I don't have time for God because i got to make money. That's, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Right? I don't have time for God. I need to make money. Where does money come from? Right? Where does that success come from? It comes from God anyway. So, yeah, are there other manifestations? 100%. Self-doubt and uh, imposter syndrome and sabotage. Though all of the above are elements that we... Um, you know, where we get in the way of God and the way of the blessing. And it's all stuff that we need to work on. But this specific, I, I don't want to downplay this one because this is a very powerful thing, bottom line. And it's a very practical, usually I come up with like some, you know, some interesting you know, or, or creative applications for our lives. But the application in our life is tomorrow morning, Monday morning, before you go to work, before you even think about work, think about God for a few minutes. That's it. It'll change your life. It'll change your day. It channels the blessing and it makes it, it makes it concrete. May it be like that for all of us with ease and clarity. All right, great to see you all. We're going to close out. Um, Yaakov and David and Adam and Tony and Mariana, great to see you. Shavua Tov, everybody. We'll see you guys soon. Take care. Bye. And great to see you all here. Thank you, thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, you can find us online at IntownJewishAcademy.org and on YouTube at IntownJewishAcademy. New episodes of the podcast come out a few times a week. If you don't want to miss a single episode, then hit the subscribe button. If you enjoyed today's episode, please take a moment to leave a rating or review. It means a lot to me and it helps other people find the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And I hope you have a wonderful day.